Starting today, the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, our Sangha in the Cloud, is open for training. Dojo literally means the place of the way or the place of awakening. You can think of the Buddhist Geeks Dojo as a training ground for the heart and mind, a place where you can put into practice with others those things that support the flourishing of mindful awareness, of compassion, of wisdom. And this isn't just about us, because we're nodes in the network of consciousness. We are the network. Our awakening is tied to the awakening of all things. So what the dojo really is, is your life. Your life is the place of the way. In the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, we simply train to realize this more deeply, more fully, more intimately. BuddhistGeeks.com slash dojo Buddhist Geeks Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Um, this is Vincent Horn, and this, this is a special episode. It's special because I'm actually in person as opposed to being over Skype with my guest today. And I'm here in, is this Snowmass Village? Is that where, where we are technically? With uh, Lodra Rinsler and Adriana Limbach. So awesome to have you guys here. And, uh, well, awesome to be here with you and uh, to be chatting with you today about, um, well, we'll see. Yeah, it's always wonderful to, to reconnect and and uh, like to send my love to the Buddhist Geeks audience. It's been a little while since I've connected, so it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, and this is the first time, so... It's good to have you here and chatting and yeah. It's always good to have first timers on the show. So great. Um, let's see. So we're at the Wanderlust Festival. Um, so we're up in the mountains with a bunch of people doing yoga and practicing mindfulness. And so that makes me really start thinking about um, this general trend of meditation sort of entering more and more areas of modern life. And I guess I should mention, you know, a little bit about your backgrounds. Um, both of your meditation teachers, um, you're also in relationship. I should mention that because that's part of the context here. We are. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> you've been together for like a, a year or so? Yeah, a little over. Okay. Yeah. So, so no, there's no, you know, breakups during this episode. Yeah. Hopefully this will be a long time, right? <laughs> Straight through. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you met at the Interdependence Project. Yeah, um, through the IDP, yeah. And you, uh, Adriana, you did the teaching, teacher training program there. I did, yeah. So presumably you studied with Ethan and some of the, some of the crew. Uh, at the IDP. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Ethan, um, great teaching team. It was Ethan and Kate and yes. Kate Johnson. Yeah. Great. So both of you are city dwellers. And um, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, the work that IDP does, Shambhala, you know, the work that we're trying to do with Buddhist Geeks. In some way, it's always about trying to offer something of value to people who haven't been exposed to it yet, that who, who might want to be or who might find it interesting. And meditation, mindfulness, it's being translated you know, into the world uh, right now in a way that's kind of like breakneck speed, feels like. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have that experience of just being shocked at how quickly that process seems to be happening. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's good and bad. You know, there's something to be said for all of these this research that's come up and like, oh, I guess those Buddhists were right these last 2,600 years. <laughs> it really does help in terms of stress reduction and increased focus and better memory. But I'm also seeing a trend of people who don't really understand mindfulness and meditation and just sort of saying, well, here's a new like niche market that's emerging. Like maybe I can get in on that. Um, the, the business folks. Yeah, the business folks. And there's nothing wrong with people that, you know, are longtime meditation practitioners, teachers, things like that, who want to engage people now that it's sort of becoming more well-known. But it's really interesting for me. Um, and Adriana's heard me use this analogy a lot. It's like I, I find a lot of people who have been meditating for a few years and then just say, I'm a meditation teacher now. It's a little bit like going to therapy for a couple of years and then being like, I'm a therapist now. It's like, well, no, you know, there's no, there is no certificate, like mainstream certification, the same way that there is for yoga. And, you know, we come to a festival like this, we see a lot of people who are trained in some tradition. And I think that's sort of one of those things that might go out the window. At least I'm concerned might go out the window as mindfulness becomes more popular, that people care less and less about someone coming from a meditative tradition and more about whether they're charismatic. Mm-hmm. Are, they, are they good marketers? Or, yeah, they're really good at branding, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so this brings up some interesting questions, right? So, so meditation is becoming mainstream, and it has been for a while now. Um, and it's being taught in various ways, some, some people from a traditional angle, some people totally outside of tradition altogether. Um, you know, some people that go, like you said, on weekend workshops, and then they're, you know, they're mindfulness teaching. Um and then the question comes in, and I think in particular, Lodra, I'm thinking about some of the the recent work you've done with, uh, like the magazine Marie Claire. And um, I'll just do a little shout out for for a, an article there. That I think <laughs> I'm going to link to in the episode notes. Uh, he's he's shaking his head right now, but it's a, <laughs> it's a really interesting uh, article on the slut whisperer. And I'm, I am mentioning that, and, and in part because you're getting out there to, and you're talking to an audience, and you're exploring issues and topics that normally would not be explored in any sort of Buddhist context. And yet, by doing so, you're also explicitly um, introducing people to some of the core concepts that you find in the Buddhist tradition and practices. And so, you, you know, you're doing the work, both of you, of kind of teaching meditation in contexts where it hasn't normally been taught. Um, and th- there is this question because you, you have a concern that you just mentioned of like losing some of the integrity of the traditions or, what, or whatever the value is that, that, that's communicated through them. I remember someone saying about traditions like family recipe. You know, it's like you lose the family recipe if you don't learn how to cook it. <laughs> um, I'm definitely, we're going to be losing a lot in my family for my grandmother who's an amazing cook at some point. And it's mm-hmm. just like, crazy but um you know there's always that tension between the family recipe and then what it is that people are asking for and what it is that they want you know and so there's that constant compromise and negotiation and tension and that's kind of curious to talk about with you guys is you know how are you seeing that play out how are you working with that um do you feel at times that you're having to compromise um or do you feel at times that you're actually breaking free of some of the limitations of tradition mm. by experimenting in these other contexts? There's a lot of questions. So whatever you want to jump onto, either of you, feel free. Yeah. I think about this in relationship to um any sort of art form. I I went to art school when I first moved to New York. I went to Parsons and learning how to draw um 
we were given the instruction of you, you need to first establish technique. You need to have some historical context behind this. You need to understand the form before you begin to break the form. Like it's really difficult to break form skillfully um, and start to add your own sort of twists and um, your own interpretation unless you have a really grounded understanding of how this technique came to be. And once you master that, then of course, give it your own flair, like start to draw in um, different sort of flavors that make it your own. And, and I think about this in terms of people who are um, teaching meditation. It really does feel like the wild, wild west right now um, because it is, it's, entered public consciousness in a way that it hadn't before. I mean, I remember studying meditation when I was in high school and it was such a weird thing. Like it was almost, I almost felt sort of closeted um, studying meditation. When was that? What year? It was my junior year in high school. I took an Eastern philosophy class and um, we... Late late 90s, early 90s? It was 98, 1998. Yep. Um... And yeah, we covered the discourses on the Heart Sutra. And I just remember, like, it sort of smacked of capital T truth and scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> I was like, whoa, hey now, all right, I'm, I'm interested. I want, I want to learn more about this. Um, but yeah, bringing it back, I think that um, having an understanding and a, and a real respect for um, where it comes from and, and sort of learning and mastering a certain amount of form before breaking technique, I think is, yeah, it keeps the integrity. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about Adriana, and I, I think I've, se- I've seen this in a handful of teachers, and these are the teachers I most enjoy working with, is that they are essentially master translators, right? There's nothing new. I mean, I don't think I've had an original thought in any of the books that I've written including this new one, How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. It's me just thinking through the very traditional Buddhist teachings on these topics and then figuring out how to actually make this accessible in a way that people can hear and relate to. And I mean, even it's, it's sort of like, in its purest sense, you know, some of the books or talks I get to do and, and somewhat unedited, and then you get into some of the more like mainstream stuff that I do uh, and you know, like web series and Marie Claire and things like that. And it's sort of almost like a a difficult task to try and ninja in some of my own understanding of Buddhism or basic principles without using any jargon whatsoever. And I mean, I don't think that the article that you referenced necessarily is a good job of that. I think there's some that I do a little bit better. Um, But I mean, there are, are principles that are Buddhist and there are principles that sort of stem from Buddhism, you know, and I think I don't want to assume that all Buddhists are liberal by any means because they're not. But I think there's things like, you know, I come out as a pretty staunch male feminist in some of my Marie Claire stuff. And, um, and you know, I sort of think about what some of the things that we cover are in term, mean in terms of like the American dream and how we imagine our society. But I don't necessarily think that's limited to Buddhism. I think sort of in the context that I get to write about more freely. So to answer your question, I think that's more of a box and less that of a new expression for me. I think some of the stuff like around my books and my presentations where I get to sort of do what I want to do <laughs> and I don't have to be like ninja it in, I can be explicit about my translation. I think that's where it gets more powerful. 
And I think, you know, there are a number of wonderful teachers out there that are doing that work without necessarily calling it translation. Uh, but it's, it's important right now that it's not, um, I don't know, I think it's important that we have traditions that are translated, that we know the form, and then we can improvise from there, as Adriana was saying. I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, Adriana art, because that's something I've, I've thought a lot about in, in comparison to the, this question of Buddhist lineage and practice and arts got so many similarities. Like you're saying, you're learning the form and then you break the form. Um, there's so many different kinds of forms. Mm. Um, and there's also some real powerful differences. And I, w- I wonder if I might mention a couple and see what you guys think mm. in, in relation to this conversation about meditation going mainstream. So one thing about art that's different is um, it seems to be that artists are always striving to invent new forms. And in some sense that's honored uh, almost above or beyond someone getting really good at a particular form. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, the history of art is not the history of a bunch of people mastering one form. It's the history of all these new forms emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking of some like postmodern art where, you know, you have, you know, birds stuffed on the wall shitting on the art that's actually on the, you know, in the thing, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you know, I don't know if that person mastered drawing or not, you know, but they definitely <laughs> thought in a way that uh, was radically different and, you know, said something um, that in some sense put put itself above or made a statement about the previous forms. And art is, seems to be um, less beholden to traditional forms mm-hmm. in some way or like more celebrating the breaking free form of old forms. And and that, that seems to be, you know, one way that it's different. So I'm just curious what you think of that and... You know, I, I sort of wish sometimes that Buddhism were a little more like art in that sense, you know, yeah. um, but that's just me. Yeah. I feel like contemporary art is an interpretation for our times. It's an interpretation that makes sense for um, the world that we're living in. It's sort of um, just paying attention. Like I almost think of art as a, as a form of visual journalism, paying attention to the world around you and, and reporting back on it. Um, it makes me think of, there's a writer that I, I really like named Austin Kleon, and he has a book called Steal Like an Artist. And he talks about how um, all art or all artistic expression is really just a, a mashup yes. of different ideas, right. of different influences. Right. Um, that, as Lodro was saying at the beginning, there's no new ideas under the sun. Um, and that we we just sort of pull in various influences um, and create a mashup through our own particular interpretation. Um, And then going back to what you were saying, um, that the more sort of thoroughly studied we are in um, various influences, the more sort of nuanced our interpretation can be, um, while still paying respect to where we got our ideas from. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. Th- this brings us back to the translation mm. um, point. And it's funny, as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, the, m- the most recent way that I was trying to describe, you know, w- what I'm trying to do with the different projects is tra- translating age old wisdom into 21st century code. Mm. And, you know, part of that for me, you know, with, with translation, this is the part that I might um, uh, respectfully disagree with in terms of what you said, which is, um, you know, when you're translating, or I find when I translate, it is a mashup. You're trying to take these ideas and and sort of mash them up in new contexts with new ideas. And it is, in a way, trying to take this thing 
and honor it in a new context, but it's also, it seems like also changes it, you know, mm-hmm. unless you think there is this pure thing that exists um, that's independent of language completely or independent of form, um, which is a very dualistic uh, a point of view, you know, from the from the emptiness is form, form is emptiness perspective. It'd be like you're know, thinking there is this thing beyond all form that you can faithfully translate. Um, it, it is always taking new form, and um, so in that sense, you are an innovator. You're not just saying the old thing in a new way. You're also saying something new. And uh, you know, I don't know, you know, if if you say that's true or not but it seems like it's hard to avoid you know when we're we'll put ourselves in that position of translation well we don't we don't have a framework yet i mean that's the really interesting thing because it took hundreds of years for buddhism for example to go from india to tibet right right and we have people who are literally like marpa the translator and you know i don't think they just called him that because he actually took the verses and put them in tibetan i think he, it's because he actually took on these personas and like actually manifested in a way that made these teachings accessible to Tibet and to Tibetans. And I think we're figuring out how to do that. And it's not you and me and Adriana. It's like there's all of us. There's something really quite profound. I was just at <clears throat> Shambhal Mountain Center a retreat in Colorado. And there were 50 people on staff and myself and Ethan Nickturn were giving a talk. And it occurred to me in the middle of the talk, and I shared this with them, that they are entirely responsible for creating a container within, within which tens of thousands of people access these teachings every single year. So they are also creating the Dharma, right? Like it's not just a handful of teachers here and there. It's everyone who's like people who are currently listening to this and might blog about it or tweet it or whatever and share this and add in their own two cents. They are creating Buddhism in America. Right. So it's, in some sense, you're completely right. Yeah. I mean, translation, there is an aspect of innovation, but it's just us, these teachings hitting the West hard. It is hitting hard. And we will probably not know what Buddhism in America means for another couple hundred years, in my mind. Even though things are so quick now. Yeah. And we probably won't know how the West, or if we'll even use the term West, we'll see right. when we're all living in virtual reality. That's my, <laughs> right. my, no, my, a my <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, hundred years. I mean, geez, you can't predict two years now, let alone a hundred. Um, okay. So that's interesting. I, I like this idea of, you know, like we're all kind of in, involved in this sort of translation process. It's, it's a collective affair. I mean, that, that is really, I think, um, it's important to look at it that way in my mind, because the main metaphor of today is like the network, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the internet, you know, we're, we're these nodes that are connected to each other, sharing ideas, seeing each other's blind spots, mm-hmm. you know, commenting behind each other's backs about how stupid we are each other is. <laughs> and it's true usually. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like we are in a process, like a, you know, an interpersonal process of, yeah. of figuring this stuff out together. I think that's true. Yeah. And, and making mistakes together. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we've had this conversation before, if not on this podcast individually. Like, I think mistakes have a completely valuable role in this process. I've made many mistakes in my role as a practitioner, as a teacher, as a translator, whatever we would want to say. Um, and I think, you know, if we can actually learn from them and, and atone and move on, so to speak, there's something really quite wonderful and taking the wisdom of these traditions and 
being willing to be bold and being willing to occasionally make mistakes and in, in making this accessible. So that leads me to an interesting question. What, what are there some projects that are coming up? Are there things you're doing where you're attempting to do that? Let's get practical. Like how, how are you doing that right now? And what, what form is that taking? Like, so that we can all sort of collectively learn from your, uh, your current uh, <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> I didn't say that I'm currently actively participating in lots of mistakes. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm. It's only in retrospect that we'll realize the mistakes that you're about to share. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I I am in an interesting time right now where I my next book, How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People, comes out in September 15th. And um, it's sort of an interesting experiment for me because I'm collaborating with a wonderful woman, Megan Watterson, who comes from something of a Christian mystic background. She's drawing on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And it's something of both of us figuring out where we meet in terms of a he said, she said, natural psycho relationships um, with the through line being like, well, inherently we're worthy of love. And that's really the core of that book and something that we both really believe in. I don't, I don't think that's going to be a mistake. I think that's a message that we all should receive from any religious background, but we don't often hear. So if that does get out, I hope it will be helpful to people. Um, you know, Susan Piver, a Buddhist teacher, and I are, are working on uh, the Daily Dharma Gathering, which is an online meditation every single night. You've participated. Emily is uh, Emily Horn's a regular teacher. Adriana's a regular teacher. We have a lot of really wonderful perspectives on that, I'd say. And it's like a half hour every single night guided meditation, which is really interesting. And it's reaching people who don't have meditation centers near their home or they physically can't leave their home. So I'm, I'm glad for that. But it is a real experiment, I'd say, in like, does this work? And is this enough of a path for people? And if it's not enough of a path for people, are we just frustrating them because they get a lot of intro stuff and they don't know where to go? So there is something really unclear yet. Like, we're, I'm not sure how that will manifest. I think it's, it's peop, there's a couple hundred people involved right now, which is great, and that they're regularly tuning in. And then the next big thing for me is um, starting something called Mindfulness, which is an in-person meditation studio in New York, which brings in lots of Buddhist teachers from different traditions. And it's a similar format, but in person, where it's 25-minute and 45-minute drop-in classes, sort of a yoga studio model where people can come in, learn meditation. It's sort of theme-based. So it's not just like, I'm going to study shamatha. It's, I'm going to go for my anxiety meditation. I'm going to go because this meditation will help me sleep. I'm going to... So there's a little bit of a um, bait and switch, I'd say, where people come in and they're like, oh, I want to, I'm going to get a meditation for sleep. And then it's basically like, if it's, if it's me teaching, I'd probably do like a shamatha meditation that's just more based in the body and less emphasis on like some other aspects. But it really, you know, I think there's, we're gathering a great collection of teachers in New York, once again, Adriana included, to um, figure out how can we, as a collective, from various traditions, translate these teachings into really like 25 and 45 minutes. These are not long classes, but ways that people can get a deep dive on meditation, understand it. And then if they actually do want to pursue a lineage, like if they want to, if they fall in love with a Zen teacher, they should go to that place, that person's main center in New York and do a full weekend with them. If they love what I do, they should go to the Shambhala Center and do a Shambhala training level one, and they can go deep that way. So it's a big gateway experiment, and we'll see how it goes. I think it's, it's, an interesting model, but um, I mean, I'd love to hear your take on all of this too. Because yeah. presumably, you'll you'll be leading some of the 
stuff there as well, right? You're, you're involved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was I was just thinking back um, to my experience uh, looking for a meditation center in New York, um, and I kind of I like went sanga shopping a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, let me drop into the Insight Center and yeah. Shambhala. Checking and stuff out. Yeah, just check some stuff out. And um, I sort of uh, landed at the Interdependence Project. And, and I think for me personally, the appeal of that, which is very similar to mindfulness, is that it, it didn't have, um, I don't think I was ready for the form and the structure of um, kind of a, a single path tradition. Like I didn't quite know enough yet to know if I was making a choice that I wanted to commit to. And the Interdependence Project um, is based on having lineage mentors from various traditions come in and, and sort of give a, a, a taste or a sampling of um, where the various traditions intersect in their philosophy, but also sort of the, the nuances or the differences um, and I found that I found that to be really um, appealing and comforting. I think, particularly coming from a Judeo-Christian background, like I had so much baggage walking in around religion. Right. Right. Like, whoa! I don't. I don't want to just sort of like map that onto this new fancy Eastern philosophy that I found. Let let me let me explore a little bit. Let me just get my feet wet. Which a lot of people do. Yeah. A lot of people bring sort of the same ways of relating to things to different religions, and, and then it becomes the same beast in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it felt kind of like the light entryway in, um, and I feel like mindfulness has a very similar philosophy behind it, is um, just kind of tasting it, testing it out for yourself, seeing for yourself before... Yeah, just sort of buying in hook, line, and sinker without um, testing. <laughs> testing first. Yeah, no, it's interesting what you're sharing that that approach, and it, it almost seems like the next logical step in what's already been happening in the traditions. You know, like in the insight tradition, I'll speak for for the for my own practice. Like meditation already was being emphasized, you know, above and beyond a lot of the other stuff that you found in the core, you know, canon of stuff, even in Burma in the 1950s. Mm. And then the teachers that brought it over, you know, into the West, like they went even further in that direction because that's what people responded to and that's what they wanted. And in some ways, like what I hear you saying with the mindfulness thing is that in some ways, it's the it's the kind of next step of that. It's like, okay, people aren't even just looking for meditation or looking for a spiritual path. Like, they're actually just, like, kind of going through some of the pain points and the struggles that modern people go through. Like, I have trouble sleeping. I'm anxious, you know, having panic attacks. Um, I don't know. I want to control my thoughts. These thoughts are crazy. Um, my relationships are, you know, kind of difficult or this relationship, whatever. You know, it's like these particular areas of unique, you know, modern suffering, the the modern dukkha, and sort of specifically kind of responding directly to that. So it's almost like another, just another level of of sort of practical response to people's specific um, interest uh, and a kind of movement in my mind away from sort of the top down, like here's the big system, let's start from here 
kind of approach and more like what's going on, you know, and then start from there and kind of building from, from the, from the ground up. Mm. Um, does that sound anything like what you've been thinking? It is. It is. I mean, it's in this great translation work, I just don't necessarily know where that fine line is. And I think that's the experiment, Yeah. right? Like, is it, do we just say, well, so-and-so is trained in the insight tradition. So-and-so is trained in the Zen tradition. So-and-so is trained in the Gelukpa Tibetan Buddhist tradition and let them do their thing. Or do we say, you know, this actually is a very traditional practice. And if you're interested in this very traditional practice, here's the way to go deeper and like make it very explicit that it's Buddhist, even if you showed up for mindful sleep or something like that. So it's, I think there's going to be some trial and error. Um, so yes, and to go back to that idea, it's like there's still going to be a path of mistakes to be made here. Um, and it's it's a startup, you know, in its core. It's a complete startup, and we will pivot, and we will figure out what, how to explain what we do to people in a way that they can hear and um, and offer teachings that are traditional but accessible. Cool. You know, it's uh, interesting that you use the term uh, pivot. Um, I was at a conference several years ago with the dude that, sort of got that term off the ground, Eric Rice, mm-hmm. um, the, the lean startup guy. And he uh, he said something that just stuck with me. He's like, you know, a pivot is a shift in strategy without a shift in vision. The vision doesn't change, but the strategy does. So I was curious, uh, could you say a little bit more about the vision? And, and, like, how would you express the vision of that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because it took me a while to figure out, and it's probably right around the time that you and I first connected around the Buddha Walks Into a Bar, but I think my work for this period of time, and maybe it'll change in the future, seems to be just trying to make meditation as a practice very accessible to people. And it's many people as possible. So daily Dharma gathering, people that would not be able to access it normally because they don't have a meditation center. Uh, mindfulness, it's people who would shy away from, quote unquote, religious places. Um, and is this continuation, I'm just like, all right, how accessible can we make this? while preserving its lineage, you know, preserving that it's a real thing, not something that's made up. Um, So the vision is just that. Can we make meditation accessible to all New Yorkers? And uh, to that end, in addition to, like, classes that people pay for, we're also offering it to uh, various groups, like cancer uh, survivors, veterans, um, addicts who who need places to go um, and meet. And we're going to offer that as a free service to New York for people who, for example, would want to do, um, they, they're not necessarily interested in the traditional A model. Maybe they want to do a heart of recovery more open meditation Buddhist model. They could have that in our space for free. Um, so we really are pretty devoted. And the vision is making meditation as a practice accessible to all of New York. And if we eventually expand beyond New York, I don't know if we will, honestly, um, virtual reality, man. Virtual reality. We'll just keep. We'll just go straight <laughs> virtual. Um, but that's, that seems to be the work. And then the strategy can shift, right? Like if that means that we start to send our wonderful mindfulness teachers out to teach at more corporations, because that's what's being asked of us. That's a strategy thing, right? right. But the vision is the same, as he said. Right. So me- making meditation accessible. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be what I'm passionate about right now. Yeah, and that, I mean that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you all because it's um, you know meditation going mainstream is about the accessibility and it's about the question of what is being accessed. Yes. You know, it, are we accessing something that has the transformative value and potential 
that that we've received mm-hmm. you know or are we offering something access to something different you know and, and how is it different i mean those are the questions that kind of uh you know re- really fascinating right now for me yeah so i appreciate you sharing some thoughts on that i wonder if there's any last kind of reflections or thoughts you know that you want to throw in for the for the geeks well i i personally you know i was thinking adrian and i were talking earlier about um where here we are at wanderlust which is primary it has been in the past primarily a yoga festival and seems to be incorporating meditation things like that and would you be willing to share what you told me earlier in terms of like you come from this world much more than i do and your experience of like meditation and yoga yeah yeah definitely i um so I had flirted with meditation for years and then like somewhere around the early aughts, um, dropped it. I was like, I live in New York. There's too much to do. I'm going to go dancing instead. Um, yep. So <laughs> We're going to be Actually, doing that after this. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> wait, is that an option still? <laughs> <laughs> but within that time, I, I developed a yoga practice um, and sort of was drawn into the philosophy and, and, and there's something just really lovely and accessible about um, the philosophy of yoga sort of pointing to the fact that at our core, that we, we sort of have this, this solid, unshakable core. There was a, a gal who was in Noah Levine's class earlier today who, who was talking about the unshakable soul that's often talked about in yoga, um, as being pure love, pure love and pure light. And um, I, I found that being in the yoga community, there was an emphasis on, um, you know, connecting to that pure core of, of love and light, and that's unshakably who you are, and um, an emphasis on positive thinking and how that has the ability to sort of shift our worldview. And um, there came a point where I was just like, I suck at this. I'm really bad. <laughs> I'm really bad at love and light and positive thinking. And I think that, I mean, I've I've always had a tendency towards um, a little bit more uh, of the dark side of things, kind of the, the underbelly, lifting up the rock and, and seeing what's under there and um, sort of a tendency towards melancholy and feeling like, I just, I'm, I really suck at love and light. And, and finding that when I was in moments of, um, perceived crisis when everything was falling down around me, like my quarter life crisis of like, ah, what am I doing with my life? Life is suffering. That's <laughs> the path for you. <laughs> Thank you. That, <laughs> Why can't we that just say that? <laughs> positive thinking, it just, it didn't, it, it didn't offer me an array of tools that felt comprehensive to the situation that I was actually encountering. Like I can't positively think my way out of this situation. Um, and so I got back on the cushion. And started connecting to Buddhist philosophy and and realizing that that it, it just offered such a variety of applicable practical tools for being a sane person um, and and developing a different relationship to myself and being able to contribute that outwards um, without just sort of um, I don't know lo- love and lighting my way through it that it it has much more depth and texture to it, um, which I think is important when we encounter moments that are really difficult of like, well, shoot, how am I going to positive think my way out of this one? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and feeling like I was just failing at that. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I think in this whole like mindfulness going mainstream thing, if we sell it just as like, oh, you'll be more productive and all of that, and we ignore the fact that you're also incredibly stressed out and incredibly anxious and incredibly in pain, then we're missing the point. Like they're, they're, in making these things accessible, it shouldn't be love and lighty. It has to be, there's real suffering. There's the individual suffering and there's the suffering of relating to others and there's the suffering of rampant racism and socioeconomic. The institutional. Institutional suffering that I think if we are willing to talk and look at that as well, then I think mindfulness will flourish. It's just when we think it's only love and light that it's going to be really problematic. Yeah. I think the thing that I really appreciate about Buddhist philosophy is that um, it's not all love and light. It's a little bit more... um, textured than that, but that, that too is okay. Yeah. That that doesn't have to be sort of eschewed to the side. There's nothing negative about that. Um, but that can also be revealed and embraced and gives us access to um, developing a, a deeper relationship with ourselves and our world. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.